Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. just was thinking the other day, a conversation I had with some friends long before. Uh, they wanted to know how, whether they speak or whether they preach very well. So I told, see, after the church, if you speak well, people will come and meet you. They'll come and say they've been blessed. Of course, I didn't tell them what Dr. Patro told last time, that they may also give you some money and all. Yeah, so, but they were not very convinced actually. So finally I told them that if you have spoken very, very well or if you have preached very well, they'll not invite you a second time. So today is my second time to speak the word of God. So you know how I fared last time. This passage is not very interesting passage actually. There are some passages in the Bible who doesn't makes me feel very good when I read. But nevertheless, I think God always has something to speak to each one of us. Shall we look to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. It's difficult to understand, Lord, unless your spirit leads us. Father, it's also sometimes difficult to accept unless you give us that humility. We pray, Lord Jesus, these few moments, your spirit lead us and guide us and fill us with your humility. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Two Sundays ago, I was uh, meeting Dr. Patra outside and he told me I have spoken all the points that you would be speaking next time. So thank you for making my life a little more easier. Uh, when we talk of all these persecutions and you know all these topics which we see in the church also happening in the secular world that we live today, and we see the life of Stephen from chapter 7, how he spoke, what he spoke before he was stoned to death. And now when we read this passage, we come across that verse where it says, the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings. So here we have Stephen, who knew the Lord, who was going, be to, who were going to be stoned, spoke the word of God. And here we also see Saul, who is persecuting the uh, believers, and a prophecy is being made about him that he's one day going to be a messenger. Philip Yancey wrote a book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I think I'm sure many of you have read that book. It's a beautiful book you should read. I still take out a few chapters just to go through it. But in 2014, he also wrote a book called Vanishing Grace. Sounds very contradictory, isn't it? In that he wrote, churches sometimes ends up turning people from God rather than turning them towards God. Sounds very depressing. He says that churches sometimes ends up turning people from God rather than turning them towards God. But he wrote this statement in the context of what Bertrand Russell's daughter wrote about his father. Now, Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher and atheist. Okay. So his daughter wrote about his father. I'm just going to read for you. He says, my father's whole life was searched for God. And she continues, I would have liked to convince my father that I have found what he has been looking for. I would have liked to persuade him that the search for God does not end in the vain, but it was hopeless. Why it was hopeless, he continues. He had known too many blind Christians, bleak moralists who sucked the joy from life and persecuted their opponents. He would have never have been able to see the truth they were hiding. He said, my father never came to know the Lord, which he was searching because of few Christians. Isn't that sad? Now, it's easy to say that is his problem. That is his fault. Let's accept that was his problem and that was his fault. What about my fault and your fault because of which sometimes people don't come to church? It's a question that hurts each one of us. It hurts me when I put these questions to you. And if you look to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. Very simple sentence. You live a godly life, you will be persecuted. In other words, persecution is a sign of your spiritual life, how mature you are in the Lord. That's what he's trying to say. And that is mainly when we talk of persecution, we think of the external persecutions that we go through or we hear. But what about the internal things that happens within us, within our own churches? That's even more worrisome, actually. That's even more worrisome. Now, I was trying to explain to one colleague of mine what all these intrinsic things or internal things affect us in a big way than an external things that can affect us. He was not trying to, he, he couldn't understand much. So I was trying to explain in a very simple way. I told him, your wife goes to the market. 
She said, yes. I said, he takes an auto or Uber. Yes. He goes to the grocery shop. Yes. And he comes back home. I said, he comes and narrates to you an incident where due to a certain issue, the auto driver shouted at your wife or the grocery fellow shouted at your wife. She got upset and came back to you and narrated the incident. I said, you try and console her. And chances are in 10 minutes, she'll forget everything and be filled with joy again. I said, you do the same thing to her. You abuse your wife, you shout at her. I said, you see the consequence. Chances are you may not talk to each other for the whole week. So the internal, what we create within our families, within ourselves, even within our churches, is much, much more difficult to heal. Much more difficult to heal. So Philippians again wrote, writes, he said, nowadays Christians devote energy to judging outside the church, which means that we do not have much time, even time to look into our own lives and our church lives. We are so busy. We see the news around us, how churches are being persecuted, believers are being persecuted. But do we ever see what's going on within our own churches? That is what you and me, we need to sometimes do. If you remember, in December 2012, a girl was raped in Delhi. They call her name Jyoti. And the government named him Nirbhaya. I think now you can recollect. It happened in Delhi. I was not in Delhi. We used to just see in the TV. Young people coming on the street and shouting. It was a cold winter, December. Isn't it? When her parents were called, they, were, uh, they, they gave an interview. I'm, I'm not sure whether it was NDTV. They were asked, what would you like the, those uh, people to be done with? What did her mother say? They should be hanged. Now, the victim has become a threat to the people who committed the crime. He said they should be hanged. But in, 2000, in 1999, when Graham Stain and his two sons were burned, and Glady Staines gave an interview, what did she say? She said, I forgive those people who have burned my husband and two sons. Similar incident, one of them have lost their daughter. Another has lost a husband and two sons. Yet she was to say, she could say that I forgive them. Why? That's what I come to. Where are we as believers, as a church, internally? Because that will reflect how externally we react to situations. And sometimes that's what Philip Yancy was saying. We are so busy about thinking about the outside world that we forget about our own self, about our own self. At some points, victims become a threat to people who have committed a crime. At some point. Today, we live in a world where just your name and my name can cost our life. You read it every day. Just your name and my name can cost our lives. And the reality is, as much as we feel the secular world is a threat to us, people also sometimes see it as a threat to them. Whether it's a fact or something they perceive. But the difference is, the threat is filled with hate. And our threat, the threat they feel about us can be filled with love. Like as Gladys Stains have done it. Like Gladys Stains have done it. They call us minority. 
in the present context that we live. And they felt sometimes, they feel as sometimes as a threat. But please remember, as a church, as believers, the people's threat that they feel against us should always be filled with love. And that's what the church is called to do. And that's what the church, the persecution will come as the word of God says, as this passage tells us. But let's always remember the threat that people feel about us, the persecution that people talk, as a church, we should always return. We should always go back in the love of Jesus Christ that we have experienced in our life. That is what we need to learn. Where was God when Saul was persecuting the believers? And where was Saul? When where was God? I mean, where was God when Saul was persecuting? And where was God when Stephen was being stoned? It's very easy to come and speak here about God in the midst of suffering. For a sermon, it's very easy. But when reality hits us, it's very, very difficult. You just need one disease that cannot be cured. You just need one lost job to doubt the existence of God to exist, to see how God works in our lives. We just need that, small things. So where is God when God doesn't answer our prayers? When Saul was proceeding to Damascus, we just read, what did God say? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Even when Saul was persecuting, God was still calling him. God was there. Now, when we read the book of Genesis, chapter 28, 10 to 22, we see two brothers there, isn't it? Esau and Jacob. Esau had a hair and Jacob did not have hair. If you don't, if you, if you don't remember, if you can't remember them, there's another way of remembering. Esau has lots of hair and Jacob did not have. And when the father wanted to bless, what did Jacob do? His mother helped him, isn't it? They went and did some hair transplantation or whatever you can call. Okay? So ladies, if you think you are the first people to go to beauty parlor, you are wrong. We men have gone long, long before actually. So Jacob went to his mother, got his hair done, came, stole the blessing, and his brother got angry and he ran away from his brother, isn't it? He came to an unknown place and he dreamed at night. The dream, you know, staircase, angels going up and down. And the morning when he woke up, in verse 16 it says, when Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought, sure the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. Even when he was a fugitive, God was with him. And Jacob named that place Bethel. You and I have missed so many battles in our life just because we are not aware of God is present sometimes, many times in our lives. We'll miss so many battles in our lives. And we keep questioning, where is God? How many of you have seen that painting by Michelangelo about God and man? I've seen it many times. I used to just say, oh, it's a good painting and all. Okay, it took him four years to paint it. If you see the painting beautifully, actually recently I've gone through it, seeing the description, because other days I used to just see and say, oh, it's so good and all. So if you look at the painting, God is stretching out to Adam. Stretching out his hand and moving his body towards Adam. If you look at the painting, the muscle, there is tautness, there is stretching. That's what we do when we bend all out of the way. He's trying to reach Adam. Okay, and he, flex, he extends his finger 
But in contrast, you look at the painting of Adam, Adam doesn't respond as much as Jesus, God extends himself actively. As Adam, picture of Adam looks a little bit less interested if you look at that painting very well. Now, when you see that finger of God, it looks much more active. But if you see the finger of Adam, it looks a little passive, not very active. And there is a small gap. Why is that gap there? What is that gap? That gap is actually just for Adam to extend his finger back to God. And many times we leave that very gap in our lives. We leave that very bad in our lives. Our God always makes a bigger move. If you see Philippians chapter 2, what does it say? God, who did not consider equality to be with God, came down to earth, humbled himself even to death. He died for us, rose from the dead, said he'll come back to us. God always makes a bigger move than we make. It's only because we don't make a small move because of which we sometimes don't experience the presence of God in our lives. When Saul was persecuting, God said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What did Saul respond? He said, who are you? And then he said, Lord. Even in his question, asking, who are you, Lord? He was acknowledging God and closing that gap between he and Saul, between he and God. And many times we question, where are you, God? Where is God? God is around us. It's very near to us. All the thing is sometimes you fail to close that small gap between God and us. That's what happens to us many times in our lives. So always, God always makes a bigger move in our lives. You know, there's a man called Bill Smith. He used the term, the gift of noticing. The gift of noticing. He says that every situation in our lives, every moment in our lives, there is God around us. He said the problem is we fail to notice that very presence of God who is around us. So he uses the term gift of noticing. Can we be a bit more spiritual sensitive, spiritually sensitive, and know that God is around us in whatever circumstances we may be, in whatever places we may be? Because our intimacy with God will determine whether we can face problems, suffering, troubles in our life. As a church, we'll grow together. As a church, the church will expand, but that will happen only when individually we grow closer to God. Otherwise, it's never, never going to happen. So let's have the spiritual sensitivity in our hearts, in our lives, to experience that very God. You can sit here in this church, pray, sing, but not experience the presence of God. It can be. So let's have that spirit in our lives. Now, we are all here good people, spiritual people. We pray a lot, we read the Bible, we know the scripture, okay? So I'm just going to make a situation. Let's say that there are some people who have never read the Bible. Okay, just imagination, forgive me for using this example. So if I pick four of you from this, congregation, presuming that you have never read the Bible, 
And I give one of you to read the book of Galatians, one of you the book of Ephesians, one of you the book of Colossians, and one of you Philippines. And I say, please come back to me after one month. And I'll ask you, can you, would you like to say anything or question me? So all of you will come with some question or the other, depending on the books that you have read. Am I right? Depending on the books. But one common question that you might come is, you might come with me saying that, who is this Paul who has written these books? That would be quite a common question. Who is this Paul who has written these books? And now if I take you to Acts chapter 7 and say, you know this stupid fellow, he persecuted the Christians. Or he was responsible for the killing of Stephen. If I take you through the book of chapter 7 and 9. Now the next question could be, how could he write such a book? Why not? When you and I, when you and I come to know Christ, everything changes. We all become somebody. It was a term used by an Anglo-American missionary who said, only when I experience the presence of God or when I experience God in my life or I accepted Jesus Christ in my life, I discovered my somebodyness. In this church, everybody is somebody here. There is no nobody here. Even I stand in this pulpit speaking to you, I see many of you who can speak much better than me in this pulpit. Maybe you have never got a chance. Because once you are in Christ, you are a totally different person. You're totally different. That's why in verse 20 and 22, Acts chapter 9, it says, talking about Paul, he said, he has started preaching. He said that he has become more and more powerful in his message. It's about Paul now. What he was and what he is now. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul himself writes about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? God gave some to be prophets, some to be healers. Many things he described. Nowhere did he mention some can be this, some will be this, but some will not be anything. He didn't write that. Everybody is somebody in this congregation in God. Nobody is left behind. And that's what happens when we come to know Jesus Christ. When we come to his presence, everybody is somebody and everybody has a gift. It's only thing is, maybe you have not discovered it yourself. But don't think just because you don't know your gifts, you don't have any spiritual gifts. Please do not think about that. When I was in a mission hospital, we used to have a Bible study group. So there was a young guy who doesn't talk much. He's very quiet, a very introvert. We were discipling him, mentoring him. He used to come home and all. So one day he took the courage to ask me. He said, what is my spiritual gift? Now, he doesn't talk much. He's a very quiet guy. I told him, your spiritual gift is to keep quiet and be silent. Now, that's not mentioned in the Bible. And it's not a gift that anybody would like to have. But I tell you, it's a very rare gift in India. Indians don't have that gift. 99% of Indians don't have that gift. We all suffer from diarrhea of words. We want to talk. Nobody wants to listen. Today, this guy, 
He's a very fine guy. He can share the word of God. He can take up good Bible study. So every one of us has a gift. Every one of us has a gift. And we are all somebody. We are all somebody. You know, St. Augustine said, there is no saint without a past and no sinner without a future. Those of us who are sitting here, who thinks we are spiritually more blessed, more mature in the Lord, or like saints, let's remember, and let's not be proud, we all have a dirty and filthy past, which we are all hiding, actually. Which we are all hiding. And those of us who thinks you are a still sinner, that you are not good enough, don't feel bad and hopeless. You also have a bright future. Because in God, we are all somebody. Precious gift God has given to each one of us. In AD 62, Philemon sent an email. Uh, Saul, Paul sent an email to Philemon. I don't know if you remember that. He wrote a mail saying, Dear Philemon, I'm sending back Onesimus back to you, who was useless, but now is useful to both you and me. What a moment, isn't it? He did not say, I'm sending back to you. Keep a watch on him because you can't trust this fellow. He stole something from you once upon a time. He has accepted the Lord, but you can't really trust him. He didn't write that way. He said, I'm sending to you. He has been useless because he stole something from his master, Philemon, as a slave. Went back, met Paul somewhere, found Jesus Christ, and he's a changed man. So Paul writes to Philemon, my brother, accept him as a brother. He was useless. But now he is useful. We are in that same boat. Maybe sometime you and I have been useless. But today we are no more useless. We are all useful people in the Lord. Nobody is useless. You become useless only when you refuse to be useful for the Lord. Please keep that in mind. You become useless only when you refuse to become useful for the Lord. And some of us who think that we are useless is just because you have not given your time and your life and your gift or your talent to the Lord. Once you give him, you see how God works in you, how God changes you, how he's going to do it. You see, have a look at it. So we are all useful people and we become useless only when we refuse to be useful for the Lord. In a discussion about Hitler and about the Holocaust, a pastor wrote something like this. I just want you to listen. He said, sometimes I wonder what might have happened if a skilled, sensitive person and befriended the young Adolf Hitler when he wandered the streets of Vienna in his confused mind. The world would have been spared of all those bloodshed. Isn't it? What a wasteful thinking. If there was somebody, someone who could be friend to Hitler when he was young, roaming the streets of Vienna, he said, we could have avoided all the bloodshed that was done. So true. And please remember, in the context and the secular world that we live today, and the political environment that we are today, out somewhere there, 
there is always a potential persecutor which you and I can influence because God has made us different. There's a challenge for you. There's a challenge for me as a church. There's a challenge for you, challenge for me as a church. And that was what God has called us. Persecutions will take place. There will be persecutors, but as an individual and as a church, can you influence them with the love that God has given us, with the spirit that God has given us. So let's stop talking about all these persecutions and persecutors. Let's look into ourselves and say, as an individual, as believers, as a church, what is my role and your role? Can I influence those people who are so-called, who can persecute the church, kill us? That's the challenge for you and the church. Now, I have talked, spoken for the last 10, 15 minutes. I'm not sure whether you have agreed to what I said. Maybe it was not very relevant to you. So I'll just end up with two Bible verses taken from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 17. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know who wrote this? This was written by a man who was persecuting people, followers of Jesus Christ. And now, who is being persecuted? Because he himself is now following Jesus Christ. So somewhere or the other, in the world that we live, we get caught. Because we live in an evil world. But what he's saying is, that is nothing compared to achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's written by Paul, who was a persecutor, and who once upon a time was a persecutor. And who knows it better than him? What I have said is nothing read through his whole passage, and you get to know and understand more who God is and, God what, and what God wants us to be as a church as an individual, as believers, as followers, Christ. And there's a challenge for you and my church that we are in. As we grow in the church, let's see what is our personal spiritual life? What is the church life? Can we be a source of blessing to people? Can we be a source of influencing people to change the world that we live is so much filled with hatred and end up in the destruction that we see among our congregation, in the church, in the news every day. May God bless us. Shall we pray? Father, we pray some thank you for your words, Lord. Sometimes it hurts us, Lord. Sometimes it's difficult to understand, Lord. But you have chosen us, Lord, as a church, as your people, Lord. So thank you, Lord, for the privilege you give us to be a voice for you, Lord, but also to be an influencer, Lord, in the world that they give, to the outside world, to the secular world, Lord, that we live in. Pray, Lord, that you'll use us as church, though small we may be as a congregation, insignificant that we may be, Lord, 
because we know that you live in us and your spirit is in us. Once again, Lord, we want to commit this moment into your hands. That even as we go back, Lord, that you continue to minister to each one of us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Request Reverend Michael has arrived to come and just say the congregate prayer and also the benediction. Shall we receive the benediction? Let the grace of our Lord Savior Jesus, which sustain us all, and the love of the Father God, which is given to us through Christ Jesus, and the sweet communion and constant fellowship of our Lord Holy Spirit Abide with us as we run our race. Amen. <laughs>